This is Copper Shenanigans, episode 872, A Conversation with Mark Wade. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 872. It's a conversation with Mark Wade. I'm very excited to have Mark back on the show. Uh, he has been on numerous episodes in the past, but it was it's actually been almost a year since the, the last time I had him on the show, so it was very exciting to have him back. Uh, this time around, we talk about Kazar, uh, that kind of weird 90s period where he was working at Marvel, uh, kind of came over from DC and started working on a bunch of different projects, including X-Men, etc. Uh, so we had a relatively short period uh, to be able to talk with Mark, but it's always a pleasure to be able to, uh, I think, even five minutes with Mark, I would be greatly appreciative. It's always fascinating to hear him talk about, you know, how his perspective on the industry. Um, you know, he has an interesting perspective because of he's kind of worn so many of the different hats within the industry, which again makes him a little bit more unique. Um, so he's been a retailer, he's been a publisher, he's been an editor, he's been you know a writer. So he's kind of done a lot of different things besides, I guess, being an artist. Um, but so he's always a always a treat to have on. Uh, the last episode, if you want to go back to check out previous episodes with Mark, uh, you could check out um, let's see episode. Let's see, I'm just trying to pull up the episodes here. Episode 770, uh, this would have been from April 20th, 2020. Uh, we got uh, November 11th, 2019, and episode 724. And then his first appearance was on episode 620 back in October uh, 2018. So I guess he usually comes on once a year. So maybe we can squeeze one more out of him this year. But uh, it's always a pleasure to have Mark on the show. If you want to email the show, you can do so at uh, comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, let's jump right Right into the episode with Mark Wade. Enjoy. Mark, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Good. Always a pleasure to be here. It's crazy. It's been almost a year, almost a, just over a year actually since we last spoke. So it was in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, things were in a weird kind of standstill in terms of publishing. So how have how has Humanoids been able to kind of move on uh, in the past year? We've we've managed to soldier on, which is which you know is a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, one of the things that I don't think anybody really foresaw was the rise of book sales. The, the I mean, everybody saw the rise of book sales coming in, in the pandemic because people were at home, but I don't think anybody understood how sharply a lot of stuff would rise, and that's very that's been very helpful to us. We've, you know, we just sold out of something we shipped a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're going back to press. Uh, same with another graphic novel that's coming out. So, you know, it, it's. We are exceeding expectations at this point. Would you have thought last year that you'd be at that kind of stage right now? No, 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 no. I, uh, but, well, then again, I, actually, I say that, but that's knowing that it's been a year. Who knew? You know, a mm-hmm. year ago, we all thought, you know, July, August, September, maybe. When when it was all kind of again first kind of happening, I'm, I'm kind of harkening again back to us talking last April. But I mean, how? How scary was it from from your perspective as as the publisher is kind of what's going to happen next, not knowing what that was going to look like and how to, having to kind of figure out, you know, what is the industry going to look like and how long would this go on? Because you're kind of charting the business in a way that a lot of creators aren't because they're not in those kind of positions of power. Right. I mean, I, it, scary is not quite the word because I'll give you two answers. One will be as the humanoids publisher and other is Mark Wade, the 35-year-old veteran. So as publisher, 
scared isn't the word because the good news is, you know, this company's been around for 30-something years, mm. uh, and they play a long game. I mean, we are used to signing – so you do original graphic novels. We're used to signing properties and knowing that they won't come to fruition for two, two and a half years sometimes. Not with everything, but with enough of it. So that that's in the DNA. So the long game is, is you know, gave me hope that, you know, we weren't going to collapse, obviously. I mean, we didn't have, we didn't, you know, our fortunes were not writing on what we were, what we were going to publish in the next six months, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of the so. reasons why I, I wanted to bring you back today specifically was to uh, go in the Wayback Machine and talk about Kazar, which is something I've always loved a lot. And I know I brought it up in one of our previous conversations, and you kind of, it almost felt like you, you clenched for a moment, like, oh man, someone's going to bug me about Kazar, but I actually really enjoyed it. So, what, what does what does Kazar as kind of this this thing in your in your bibliography? What does it mean to you? so much fun to do and that was such a surprise so what happened was Andy Kubert was coming off Captain America but we wanted something to do together and we both really enjoyed each other's work and I remember we were specifically we were at a Marvel retreat and Andy came up to me and said what about Kazar and my first thought was are you crazy this is, first off he'll never headline a book and secondly I'm you know I'm the guy who brings wet naps to the picnic I'm the guy you know I'm not that guy I'm not the I'm not a <laughs> I need, I need to find something of myself in, all, in every character I write, and I don't know what I could possibly find in Kazar. There's just nothing there. But I went off and thought about it, and I took my standard approach, which is, as I say, look for common touch points, look for things that are there in the character that I could flesh out that have some meaning to me or that I can relate to in some way without imposing something on it that doesn't exist. And... Yeah, the thing I locked into was that unlike Tarzan or his elk, Kazar was a functioning kid by the time he was dropped off in the Savage Land. I mean, he'd been to McDonald's. He'd seen cartoons. He knows, <laughs> like, he could speak English. It was, you know, it wasn't, he had already been dipped in the culture. So it's not like he was raised from infancy and knew nothing else. And that was the difference to hang it on. The idea that as he's the idea is that his, his wife is pregnant and as they're getting closer to no actually I'm sorry actually they'd had a kid by that time um, getting closer to being a father sometimes makes people I don't, I don't know this from personal experience I'm not a dad but I've certainly spoken to enough dads and seen it but in a lot of ways you know you want to be a father you're expecting to be a father it's going to be awesome but there's a little part of you that's like holy crap when did I grow up <laughs> you know when did that happen I you know, I'm, I'm still a kid. And so that's kind of the gene that got tripped in, in Kazar to some degree. It's the, the, you know, bringing the kid up and and knowing he's going to have to bring him up in a world much different than he was originally brought up in as a, as a young child. Mm. You know, it, it, it he got nostalgic for the things of the outside world. He got nostalgic for baseball. He got nostalgic for you know, Walkmans because this was 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> and, and so that was, that made, first off, it created a great tension between him and Shanna, his wife, who is also very familiar with civilization, keeping the savage land as an adult, but has no use for the outside world, just really no use for civilization. So it set a really great, you know, adversarial 
relationship in this couple. And it also allowed me to just have some fun and have, you know, Kazar teach the natives baseball and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so that was that, you know, that that friction between the two is really what drove the series. And boy, it just was so delightful to to to, re, to, uh, to write. Did you ever ask Andy what what it was about why why Kazar? Like why why was that the thing that kind of jumped to his mind? I mean, I mean at yeah, that point he could have kind of done anything, right? Like he had done X Men and Captain America. He was such a big commodity at the time, and he picks Kazar. Yeah, it's it's there are two reasons. I mean, one is that you know Tarzan's in the Kubert's family blood. You know, mm. it's it's uh, he like his dad before him enjoyed the you know the rough and tumble world of the jungle. And then beyond that, you know, the, there was it was a point at which at Marvel they were eager to try new things. Not that they're not, you know, on a, on a regular basis, but that specific moment in time. This is my memory is this is the same time as Thunderbolts. This is the same time mm-hmm. as, as a few other launches that Marvel did. And so there was at that exact moment in time, you know, sort of an imperative for Marvel to really get behind things and see what comes of them and, and don't be afraid to put your heavy hitters on the newer things so I'm curious about where you were at this point in time because kind of when I look, it's interesting because I, I can't remember who said it the idea that the, the golden age of comics is 12 um, and I, I definitely I, I understand that kind of feeling and I, I look back and I would have been 12 and like 95 or so 96 in and around kind of this period where Kazar comes out a year or two later and so my first kind of introduction to you was actually on X-Men which was a relatively short period and I'm curious what kind of brought you over to the you know so-called house of ideas to begin with when you had been entrenched at DC for a while at that point uh, Captain America brought me over I mean I distinctly remember the, getting the call when I the, the call at Marvel I'd done a like a four issue Deadpool miniseries before that that's right um, yes Kind of, it kind of as a goof, um, and it was a great experience. It wasn't a terrible experience, but it wasn't great because there was just so much editorial rewriting uh, done. As you know, as the further and further I got the series, the more and more it became less of the story I was anxious to tell. As opposed to DC, where you know I still had editorial guidance, but it wasn't as hands-on. So uh, you know, I I didn't really foresee much of a career at Marvel, and I got the phone call from. Ralph Macchio's assistant editor Matt Idelson wanting to talk to me about a Marvel project and I remember distinctly thinking to myself you know all it, if it's Captain America I'll do it otherwise I'm going to be too busy but it, you know Cap is the only thing that could possibly get me over there but Mark Runewald has been on the series forever mm. and he's not going to give that up it's going to you know so I called him up he said Cap I was stunned and because I love Cap because he was the, one of the few Marvel characters that I had an enormous passion for I like all the Marvel characters and I've developed a passion in the in, in the you know in the ensuing years for a lot more of them but at that point as you say I was in Wisconsin DC you know I was always a DC kid growing up and Captain America is one of those the few Marvel characters that I sort of held to that same you know level of esteem was so I'm curious. So like knowing that that that's that was that was kind of the Marvel character. Was was it any trepidation when you actually kind of jump on it, like something you want to do, and then you sit down and go, "What am I going to do here?" Or did you know right from the get go what you wanted to do with Steve? I don't think I knew from the get go, but because it's not like I've been thinking about it for years, because mm-hmm. I didn't think it was ever going to be a possibility. But um, 
I, I don't remember there being trepidation. I think that knowing that artist Ron Garney was coming aboard made me very enthusiastic because it, it's not that there was anything wrong with the folks who were drawing Captain America before him, but it, a new writer on a book is, you know, sometimes a little, a, you know, will get you a little bit of press, but to really bring attention to a relaunch, you've got to have a different artist. Mm-hmm. Not even necessarily, you know, I mean, not even necessarily a better artist, although in, in this case, Ron was terrific, but you just need that visual element to, to communicate instantly to readers as a shot across the bow that, hey, this is a different Captain America. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, I, I'm sure this is, you've gone over this many times in other interviews, but obviously, you know, when Heroes Reborn happens, you know, you're not on the book anymore. What was the call like when Heroes Return happened that you kind of get to go back? It was, I, I, I remember being a little, a little gun shy about it, um, because it had been a weird situation, as you say, that it's a, I, you know, Ron and I had gotten on the book, and what we didn't know for, you know, six months or whatever was, oh, you know, we were living on borrowed time, you know, from the moment before we even did our first issue, the, the deal was in process to move everything over and, and get the those heroes out of the Marvel Universe. So that, you know, didn't leave a great taste in my mouth, but these things happen and there's no point in carrying grudges. Uh, you know, it's business. And so when I got the call to take over again, I was called about Cap and another book, uh, another one of the books, which I don't go into detail about because I don't want to, to sound like I'm, <laughs> like whoever did take it was a second choice. Um, but I was offered both, and I thought I don't have the time to do both, but I could do Captain America. There's still some, there's still some life in Captain America. There's still some stuff I would want to do. Hmm. Did you when when they then they bring you back? Did you know right from the get go that you were going to get uh, Ron initially back with you? Yeah, yeah. I think that was part of the part of the appeal, part of the package. I'm not sure I would have gone back if it had been somebody else. And I mean, I, obviously, I don't need to, don't need to kind of relitigate history, but you know, w- would you have preferred that Ron had stayed longer, or do you think it worked out for the best with Andy coming on and, and being the regular penciler? Um, well, actually, I mean, in in my mind, Ron did stay on because what happened was, you know, because of the late launch of the Heroes Return stuff, and you know, we all started off behind the eight ball in terms of schedules, and it's easier for a writer to make it up than an artist. You know, you, I can I can conceivably just put my nose to the grindstone and crank out a bunch of scripts, but you know you can only draw so fast. So Ron started out behind the eight ball, you know, already behind, not his fault, and couldn't catch up. And we were running later and later, and the decision was made: we don't want to lose Ron because he's awesome, but we do need to do something. What if we created the second book, Captain America: Sentinel of Liberty? And that would be Ron's book. So I would be doing both books, and that would give us a chance with the main book to get ahead or catch up or at least, you know, get ahead or at least catch up. And then give Ron not only a chance to start on a reasonable schedule, but a number one. And it's something that he, that, that he can say it's his book. And so we thought that was a, a pretty good solution. Mm-hmm. Did you, so again, how crazy was it that you, you know, you at some point thought you would never get a chance to write Captain America, and now you're writing Captain America in two books at the same time. Did that seem kind of like a crazy wish fulfillment? 
it did. It seemed like a, like a, this is a dream thing happened. I don't know what's what's going on here, but I'm suddenly the Captain America guy, and it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting because I mean, has there ever been another time where Captain America had multiple books like that? Um, they actually did a Captain America and the Falcon series for a little while. That's right. Yes. In the or mid to mid two thousands, I think. Um, but it's been a very rare thing. So I have a question about that Captain America run um, when you're still with Ron. So one of my favorite moments of your run is when he loses the shield because um, it's just such an emotional moment. And it, it, just looking at it, I'm, I'm just always kind of blown away at the, by also Ron's art because Ron really sells the emotion of the moment. Um, was that a controversial yeah. thing to do at the time to kind of take the shield off off the um, you know off the stage? Um, not really. In fact, it was. While it was our idea, it was sort of prescribed because the deal was with the Heroes Return characters, Every, if you look at the books, every one of them had a new – something new and different about them. Fantastic Four had a different look. Iron Man had a different suit. The Avengers had a different lineup. Well, there's not much you can do with Captain America in terms of a visual you know, flag that says – no pun intended – that says, hey, things are different. The only thing – you can't work with a costume because the costume is iconic and perfect. That leaves you the shield. And it occurred to me at that point, if we lose the shield for a while, give him his original triangular shield back, we get some mileage out of that. And knowing that we will always restore that shield at some point down the road, but, you know, write it as if it was gone forever. Did, I mean, what was the fan mail like at the time? Do you recall? Um, I, it, it, there, was, there was a fair amount of negative pushback, but my memory is at that point most people had read a comic book before so they, they kind of knew that nothing lasts forever and this is probably not permanent very true and then you i mean in that kind of first seven months not only do you have cap lose his shield you also have your your own kind of secret invasion of scrolls um which i always really enjoyed and it was funny when they did secret invasion at marvel in the mid-2000s i was always like mark did this before <laughs> it was really good before too <laughs> i know <laughs> I know. I looked at that. I, I, I have this. You know, I have. It happens. It, I, it's funny. There's there's several times that's happened. It was, um, you know, identity crisis. Of Marvel was a ter- or a DC was a terrific series, but I'd already done that in the Silver Age mm. the crossover event. It was the same exact plot. So it's okay. I mean, it's it's it just means that I I apparently know what I'm doing. But yeah, it was that was a fun story to write because I really got a chance to dig deep into what Captain America means, what he stands for big pontificating four-page speech talking about what his what his mission statement was because I felt we'd gotten away from that a little bit. I felt that we'd gotten away from the idea that you know a perfect Captain America story can happen only to Captain America. Mm-hmm. If you put Spider-Man in a story, it wouldn't be as good or wouldn't make it as much sense or wouldn't be as logical. So Captain America has got to deal with things on a, on a sort of national level. He's got to deal with I mean, essentially what Captain America stands for, what he stands for is not the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. In my mind, what he stands for is the Bill of Rights. Hmm. That's his remit, is defending the Bill of Rights. And so once I sort of locked into that, I had a much better sense of what the future of that character would be. And it would have to be dealing with real American problems, you know, immigration, uh, you know, overcrowding, just any number of things. 
it's interesting because in, in a lot of ways, like especially in that initial storyline where you have the whole kind of premise of cap mania, it feels like it would even play even more so today because this idea that you know someone if they said to do something and they were so beloved and you, you could radicalize a segment of the population that quickly, and we've already seen that in real life. So it's it almost plays even stronger now than it did before. I think about it that way, but it's a good point. Which is again kind of I guess it's, it's scary that that's you know kind of the, the world we're in. But I mean, if, if someone again, <laughs> yes. But I mean, yeah. the whole idea, and I, again, I can't remember which issue it is, where you have you know a guy running through the streets saying Captain America lies. Like that's again a very arresting kind of. I think that was the first page of one of your issues too, and it was really arresting to kind of you know kind of reframe how are people really reacting to Captain America, especially when he has been you know kind of taken out and someone else is taking his place and doing something very bad with this you know this right. image that everyone trusts. That was, I mean, that was so much. I mean, fun is not exactly the word to, to say to play with because it was not a goofy story. It was in it had some real serious and dark parts of how America perceives its heroes and how it perceives its celebrities. But yeah, that's you know, I, I, I don't know that you could, I don't know that you could write that story today and it would have any sort of impact whatsoever because the nation has become so divided mm. and. There's, it's impossible to imagine a Captain America that the entire nation could get behind or believe in. I don't, I don't know if that exists right now. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Captain America, so another thing I did want to chat with you at least briefly about was uh, your work relatively recently on Avengers 4, um, which I really enjoyed. And it was interesting because you get to play with Captain America in a much younger, kind of brasher, still kind of getting used to our world, as opposed to the more seasoned veteran that we usually get to see. What was that like for you to kind of, you know, move your writing muscle to kind of have a much younger, different version of Cap? I did have to stretch a little bit. I did have to again, be aware that this was a cap was you know, set a few months after he came out of the ice. So, you know, still a little rusty in some ways and a little, like you said, a little, a little more brash or a little less tolerant of the, the changes around him. I think, you know, less tolerant of Hawkeye's attitude than he would you know, mellow out on that in years to come. But he's not used to, you know, at that point he was not used to giving orders and people saying no. Hmm. <laughs> he was not used to uh, commanding people in battle and having them bicker with him. That's not that was not what he signed on for. So that was that was a real treat to do. That just came about because I just Barry and I want Barry Kitts and I want to do something together in Marvel, and I love those those flashback projects that. Tom Brevoort and I refer to as dancing between the raindrops of continuity, right? <laughs> you find that that sweet spot in, in a moment of Marvel continuity that it, the story that you write still can fit in that continuity, but it, you know, it, you take a specific moment in Marvel time and expand it. That's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, as you said, like not only do you have a Captain America who's you know, a little bit different than the norm, but you also have the kind of a very heightened versions of Quicksilver and, Hawk- and Hawkeye because, as you said, they're they're not used to being Avengers, not used to being heroes yet, so they're still they're you know they haven't been kind of uh, softened either, and I think that's part of what made it such a fun read is that you get to see the, the characters are obviously familiar, but they're different because this is very early in their timelines. Yeah, they're very much at each other's, each other's throats, and I you know and and cap you know it's i mean it was it was an undercurrent that was always there in the early avengers books that don you know don heck was doing with with stan back in right after those four joined the avengers but to be able to really stretch it out and expand upon it and and 
really dig into Cap's continual frustration that he's in charge of three guys, but who he didn't even pick, which people forget. Mm-hmm. People forget the original captain in the original Avengers 16 when the old order changes and all the Avengers left and we're left with Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and, and uh, Hawkeye haven't been drafted. Cap was not in the story yet. He was still in, in the jungles overseas fighting Baron Zemo. So halfway through the story, after the other three had been inducted, Cap comes back and says, hey, guys, what's up? And they're like, hey, good news. You know, you're babysitting these three kids now. And uh, that's, you know, that was right there. But they didn't, and then they didn't really do much with that. There was a little bit of undercurrent with it, but there, there, he gave us a chance, like I said, to really play on that whole, what do you mean? <laughs> wait, wait, what? I gave me a chance to do a lot more, a lot more with that. How I mean, I would imagine at this point you and Barry are pretty effortless as a team. So how much of a script do you actually give him, or is it more of kind of a looser plot because you guys are so used to working together? That's exactly it. I mean, it's more of a loose plot. It's it's I always still break things down page by page and and sort of beat by beat, but not necessarily panel by panel with Barry. And a lot of times I'll you know when I as I'm writing, I will throw in sort of placeholder dialogue not only just so he'll know what the characters are saying and how they're reacting, but also to remind me of what I was thinking in the moment. But they're, they're, yeah, they're not full scripts. They're, there's some sort of hybrid between a synopsis and a full script. Now, when you were working on Kazar with Andy, again, given that this was kind of something that can, kind of came originally more from his idea of wanting to kind of draw this character in this world, how much leeway was given at that point uh, in terms of you know the plotting and how that kind of worked, given, again, that it was kind of coming artist first in terms of the initial idea of working on the book? Well, same thing. I mean, it was that was that was much the same. Again, Andy and I had also developed a shorthand by that time after all that time on Cap. So... You know, and also because, as you say, because it was Andy's idea to come aboard, so Andy clearly had the passion for it, it's always important for me to have a relationship with my artist and really have conversations about what kind of stories they want to tell or what kind of energy they want to bring to the book because they're not art robots. You know, it's collaborative medium. So I know we had conversations about my ideas about this and this and this, and we had a lot of good phone calls and you know, so I, was, I don't remember specific specific cues, but I do remember that it was you know again rough plot. You know, here's here's a, a paragraph to cover this page, and here's some of the dialogue that I want to put in here, and just go to town, and then he would just go he would tell the story the way he wanted to tell it. Now, again, in and around this period, I guess, so I, I got to ask you: you come to Marvel, you start doing uh, Captain America, which is again like kind of the big one for you. So, how the heck do you end up on X Men at all? <laughs> I'm just always curious about. <laughs> How this? Because again, it, it was it wasn't a lot of issues. But again, as a kid, like I, the first time I ever saw you was was on X Men. I picked up X Men. I think I started with issue fifty three, which is one of the issues you were writing. I think you wrote what five or six. And so right in the middle, I'm, yeah. I'm you're my you're my X Men guy. Right when I start picking it up, and then it's only afterwards I go back. And I'm like, he wasn't on it that long. Like what happened? No, it it was. Yeah, I was on it for less than six months. I mean, what happened was I was, as luck would have it, I was the flavor of the month at the exact moment that they needed another writer for Fantastic for uh, X-Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Bob Harris called me up, asked me if I'd do it. And I thought this could be, a, this could be a lot of fun. And also frankly, a very lucrative job at that point, because we were, everybody was still earning royalties on that book at that point. Nobody really is earning royalties nowadays, but back in the day, they were making pretty good money doing that book. Mm-hmm. So jumped in and I thought I was going to have a ball, 
but it just the office politics and the internal struggles about who controls which which writer gets to choose which direction things are going and it was just an ugly situation where I, I was kind of brought in to be an equal partner as a storyteller and was not really given an equal voice if you will mm-hmm. I just I so I didn't it wasn't any fun that was you know, the point at which you start dictating my stories to me I'm not going to get mad and storm off I'm just going to point out that this is a waste of everybody's time because I can write my own stories mm-hmm. and if you don't like them that's fine that's totally fine again your sandbox I'm never going to like I say you know if if I feel like I'm being too heavily rewritten I'm not going to stomp my feet about it I'm just going to realize okay that's the way this particular editor works and I don't I, you know, I'm not taking it personally that's just a business thing it, we're not compatible that way and so there was a lot of drama a lot of drama on that book at that exact moment in time mm-hmm. uh, you know certain writers wanting uh, certain writers very jealous of the fact that I was given the book mm. uh, and worked to undermine that because they thought they should have the gig it was it was I couldn't I couldn't get out of there fast enough mm. well, I, 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 it was my choice to leave and I just couldn't get out of there fast enough <laughs> I mean, as a fan at the time, again, a very new fan at the time, I did at least very much enjoy your work. So I can say that, like, a few, a few of the issues that like are ones that even go back to my friends with and be like, look at this, look how awesome this is. And obviously, work that you were, you know, paired up, uh, obviously, with Andy. So Andy's giving you amazing, uh, you know, visuals. And so I've always really enjoyed it. So even yeah. if it wasn't maybe the most enjoyable experience as a writer, I, as a fan, have to at least say that I really appreciated your work on it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I wish I wish it had worked out a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit more comfortable at the time. <laughs> but I guess, as you said, like I, I can I can understand it. Like I find it fascinating to talk to people like yourself and kind of have a better sense of what you know the back office politics were of these periods because they're so interesting about all the things that were going on behind the scenes and how you know it was kind of starting to impact the industry because the industry obviously was going through its own you know major upheavals at this time. So I can understand why people would especially on a franchise like X-Men, which would have felt like this is where the money is as everything else is starting to fall apart. Let's hold on to the money raft. Yeah. And that's, that's really what it was. It was, it was a combination of power and greed. And look, I just, I, I don't need that. I'm, I'm not a rich guy. I will never be a rich man, but I do okay. You know, I keep a roof over my head. I keep food coming in and I get to buy an occasional Superman toy. And that's cool. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't need to be rich. I just need to be happy at what I'm doing. That's more important to me. So I'd you know, much rather work on an assignment that pays no royalties if I'm having a good time than I would on an mm-hmm. assignment that pays great royalties but is a major pain in the ass to do. Was was young Mark as zen as you are now? Yeah, he was. Even then. Yeah, he, Zen is not exactly the word. It was, it was strident is probably a better word, but it was still the same feeling i don't want to work on something that's going to make me unhappy because it's going to show in the work okay well again i know we, we have limited time so mark i very much appreciate you coming back and kind of going through the the marvel 90 years with me i really appreciate it and i would love to have you back sometime i'm happy to i owe, I owe you at least a half an hour so <laughs> we'll do it in the near future excellent thank you so much